So I, I rode my bicycle for a year in 2010 uh, from uh, Canada to Colombia, and as part of that journey, I discovered that basically a billion people in the world didn't have uh, access to clean drinking water. So I began this journey and did some higher level education and been on a series of trips with my friends in the last six years. That's all led us to this, to this spot now where we've become very interested in a small scale uh, decentralized desalinization projects. It's really the future of water. Welcome everyone. I'm really glad you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. I want to help you understand uh, every word of God in the Word of God. You know, God has so many beautiful things that He wants to say to you and I today, and I'm stoked that you could be with us. I hope you're encouraged and blessed by what we look at today in Matthew chapter 5. Now our objective is simple. It's disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches. Now we this is a grassroots effort to see God's love and kingdom multiplied all over the place. So Matthew 5 verses 19 and 20 says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men uh, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. Now, the commandments are to be obeyed and explained and fulfilled by Jesus' life and teaching, uh, not as in the legalistic thinking of the religious authorities of Jesus' day. For example, sacrifice is commanded by the law, but it was fulfilled in Jesus. So we do not run the danger of being called the least in the kingdom of heaven by not observing, you know, animal sacrifices detailed in the law of Moses or something weird like that. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Christian is done with the law as a means of gaining a righteous standing before God. One passage that explains this is Galatians 2.21 where it says, For if righteousness could come through the law, then Jesus died in vain. However, the law stands as the perfect expression of God's ethical character and requirements. So the law sends us... Uh, to Jesus to be justified because it shows our inability to please God ourselves. You know, we always come up with these ways of thinking that we're good, but God says, you're good when you come to me, when you come to my son Jesus. So unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Considering the incredible devotion to the law shown by these people, how can we ever hope to exceed what they had attempted to do. Now, the Pharisees were so scrupulous in their keeping of the law that they would even tithe from the small spices obtained from the herb gardens, Matthew 23. Now, the heart of this devotion is God is shown by modern-day, you know, Orthodox Jews. In early 1992, tenants of three apartment buildings in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burned to the ground while they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath violated the Jewish law because at that time they were forbidden even to use a phone on the Sabbath because in doing so it would break an electrical current which was considered a form of work. Now when the half hour it took for the rabbi to decide yes you could call the fire department it had spread to two other neighboring apartments and they had come to the ground. 
The life of Paul shows what the righteousness of the Pharisees was like in Acts 23 and 26 and Philippians 3. We can't exceed their righteousness because our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Paul describes the two kinds of righteousness in Philippians chapter 3 when he says concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless, but what things were gained to me I've now counted a loss for Christ, but indeed I count all things a loss that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So through the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, it was impressive to look at. It could not prevail before God. It's why Jesus came. So then we're not made righteous by what we do or by keeping the law. We're made righteous by our trust and our faith in Jesus who fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. Now verses 21 and 22, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Uh, for whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Wow, these are strong words. What does it mean? Well, these people had not really studied the law of Moses for themselves. All they had was the teaching on the law from the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, in this particular manner, the people heard the scribes and the Pharisees teach, you shall not murder. He said, but I say to you, Jesus shows his authority and does not rely on the words of the previous scribes and teachers. He will teach them the true understanding of the law of Moses. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not murder, was true enough. If they had also taught that anything short of murder might be allowed, Jesus corrects this and makes it clear it is not only those who commit the act of murder who are in danger of judgment, it's those who have a murderous intent. In the heart is the danger of judgment. Now, we should emphasize that Jesus is not saying that anger is as bad as murder. It is profoundly morally confused to think that someone who shouts at another person in anger has sinned as badly as someone who murders another person in anger. Jesus emphasized that the law condemns both without saying that the law says the same things. The laws of the people could only deal with the outward act of murder, but Jesus declared that his followers understood that God's morality addressed not only the end, but also the beginning of murder. Now to call someone raka expressed contempt for their intelligence, calling someone a fool or stupid, or showing contempt for their character. Jesus says not to do that. Now verses 23 through 26 says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. Now, And then the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Now assuredly I say to you, we'll by no means get out of here till you've paid the last penny. Now what's going on here? Well, leave your gift 
there before the altar and go your way, Jesus considers it far more important to be reconciled to a brother than to perform a religious duty. Jesus says we first must be reconciled to our brother. We can't think that our outward service towards God justifies bad relationships with others. We should do what Paul commanded in Romans 12, if it is possible, as much as it, it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Agree with your adversary quickly. Jesus commands us to quickly setter, settle anger and malice with other people. When we ignore it or pass it off, it genuinely imprisons us as if we would actually be thrown into prison. Paul expresses the same idea in Ephesians when he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath like the sun that's setting behind me. But when we hold on to our anger against another, we then sin and we give a place to the devil. Now assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. Jesus here spoke with figures of speech. The ultimate penalty one pays at the hands of the judge, the officer, and the prison could never be satisfied with money, the last penny. Yet the reality suggested by these strong figures of speech remind us that the suffering of eternity is indeed eternal. Now verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now you have heard that it was said to those of old, now Jesus deals with what they had heard regarding the law of adultery. Of course, the teachers of the day thought that adultery itself was wrong, but they applied the law only to give the actions to the heart, not to the heart. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus explains that it's possible to commit adultery or murder in our heart or our mind, and this is also sin and it's prohibited by the command against adultery. However, it is important to understand Jesus is not saying that the act of adultery and adultery in the heart are the same thing. More than a few people have been deceived on this point and say, I've quote, I've already committed adultery in my heart, so I might as well do it in practice. Wrong. <laughs> the act of adultery is far worse than adultery in the heart. Jesus's point is not to say that they're the same thing, but to say they are both sin and both prohibited by the command against adultery. Some people only keep from adultery because they're afraid to get caught and in their heart they commit adultery every day. It is good that they keep from the act of adultery, but it's bad in their, if their heart is filled with adultery. Adultery in his heart. Jesus considers adultery in the heart a sin, but, we, but what we think about, we allow in our heart to rest is based on our choice. Now many people believe they have no choice and therefore no responsibility for what they think about, but this contradicts the clear teaching of Jesus here. We may not be able to control a passing thought or a passing feeling, but we certainly decide where our heart and our mind focus and rest. It's our choice. So verse 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out, you cast it from you, for it's far more profitable that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, you cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for one of you that your members perish than for your whole body 
to be cast <laughs> into hell. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now here Jesus uses a, a figure of speech. He did not speak literally. Now sadly, some have taken it and have mutilated themselves in a mistaken effort to pursue holiness. For example, one famous early Christian named Origen castrated himself on the principle of this passage. <laughs> Wrong application. <laughs> a trouble with a literal interpretation is that it doesn't go far enough. Even if you did cut off your hand or gorge your eye out, you still could sin with your, with your other hand or your eye. And when those are gone, you can sin with your mind, which is where all sin starts. It's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus simply stressed the point that one must be willing to sacrifice to be obedient. If part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable that part of our life die rather than condemn our whole life. Sometimes we have to make habit changes. This is the one thing many are, un are unwilling to do, and that is why they remain trapped in sin or never come to Jesus. They don't want to change. They never go beyond a vague wish to be better. Now, verse 31 and 32 says, Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Well, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. Now, in Jesus' day, many people interpreted this as permission for divorce, Deuteronomy 24, as granting virtually any reason for a ground of divorce. Some rabbis taught this that he even extended to allowing a man to divorce his wife if she burnt his breakfast. <laughs> it's crazy. The permissible grounds for divorce, they were debated and talked about. Jesus brings total clarity. He says whoever divorces his wife except for an affair or sexual immorality commits adultery. Now, those who wanted to make divorce easy had a loose interpretation of this. Jesus makes it plain that the idea of uncleanliness or sexual immorality, not anything anybody might do in a relationship outside of that, is grounds for divorce. The teaching of Jesus on marriage and divorce that's further explained in Matthew 19, but here we see the intent of Jesus. Getting back to the intent of the law, reconciling people, keeping long-term relationship, honoring the institution of marriage, causes them to commit adultery. An illegitimate divorce gives place to adultery because God doesn't recognize the divorce and sees a new relationship as bigamous, meaning two people or three people in a relationship, but not God. If that person goes on to marry someone else, God considers the relationship adultery because he sees them as still married. Now, verse 33 through 37, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Well, I have brown hair, and, I'm, and I have a full head, and I'm very thankful for this passage. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not swear falsely. Now the scribes and the Pharisees had twisted the law 
you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain in Exodus 20 to permit taking virtually every other name in a false oath. Now, Jesus reminds us that God is part of every oath anyway, that if you swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or even your own head or you swear by God and your, that your oath must be honored, it was about keeping your word. But let your yes be yes. Having to swear or make oaths betrays the weakness of your word. It demonstrates there's not enough weight in your character to confirm your words. How much better is it to let your yes be yes and your no be no? Now, some have taken this word of Jesus as more than an emphasis on truth-telling and honesty, as an absolute prohibition of oaths. Well, this is misguided because oaths are permitted under certain circumstances, as long as they're not abused and used as a cover for deception. God himself swore oaths, Hebrews 6. Jesus spoke under oath in court, Matthew 26. And Paul made some oaths, Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 and Galatians and Thessalonians. So verses 38 through 42 says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you from him who wants to borrow, for you do not turn away. What's going on here? Well, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So the law did teach an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, Exodus 21. But over time, religious teachers moved this command out of its proper sphere, a principle limiting retribution for the civil government, and put it in the wrong sphere as an obligation in personal relationships. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Here Jesus presents the fullness of the eye for an eye law and how its idea of limiting revenge extends into the principle of accepting certain evils against oneself. Now when a person insults you, slaps you on the cheek, we want to give them back what they gave to us plus more. Jesus said we should patiently bear such insults and offenses and not resist an evil person who insults us this way. Instead, we trust God to defend us to defend us. So we're supposed to let harsh words and mean words roll off of us. We're supposed to ignore those things. We're supposed to let God be our defender in those situations. Now it's wrong to think that Jesus means evil should never be resisted. Jesus demonstrated with his life that evil should and must be resisted, such as when he turned the tables over in the temple. Now it's also wrong to think that Jesus means that there's no place for punishment or retribution in society. Jesus here speaks to personal relationships and not to the proper functions of government in restraining evil. Now, I must turn my cheek when I'm personally insulted, but the government has a responsibility to restrain the evil man from physical assault. Now, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them two. Now, we're to take hold of the command of evil impositions by making a deliberate choice to give more than were required. Now at that time Judea was under Roman uh, military occupation. Now under military law any Roman soldier might command a Jew to carry his soldiers pack for one mile but only one mile 
Jesus says, go beyond the one mile required by the law and give another mile out of free choice of love. This is how we transform an attempt to manipulate us into a free act of love. Give to him who asks of you. The only limit to this is the kind of sacrifice in the limit that love will impose. It isn't loving to give in to someone's manipulation without our transforming it into a free act of love. It isn't always loving to give or not to resist. Now, verses 43 and 47, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. So what's he talking about here? He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Instead, Jesus reminds us that in the sense God means it, all people are our neighbors, even our enemies. To truly fulfill this law, we must love, bless, do good and pray for others, not only our friends. Jesus understood that we will have enemies, yet we are to respond in love to them and kindness, trusting that God will protect our cause and destroy our enemies in the best possible way by transforming them into our friends. Think about that. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In doing this, we are imitating God who shows love towards his enemies by sending rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? What do you do more than the sinner? We should regard it as no matter of virtue if we merely return the love that is given to us. Remember Jesus here taught the character of the citizens of his kingdom that we should expect that character to be different than the world. There are many good reasons why we should expect more from Christians than from others. Now verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. If a man could live this way, Jesus has told us in this chapter, he would truly be perfect. He would never hate or slander or speak evil of another person. He would never lust in his heart or mind and not covet anything. He would never make a false oath and he would always be completely truthful. He would let God defend his personal rights and not take it upon himself to defend those rights that he feels like he has. He would always love his neighbors and even his enemies. Now, this wraps up our time looking at Matthew chapter 5. And uh, there's so much in there. I hope you're getting a lot out of it. I always like to end my talks with the time to pray together. You know, prayer is just talking to God. Maybe you need to quit doing some things in your life and feel more connected to God. We can always come to God and get a fresh start and ask for his help in our life. I'd love for you to pray with me right now and just say, God, would you help me in my life? Would you help me to follow you? Would you give me a fresh start? Would you help me to feel connected to you? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Now, I sure hope you'll join me for tomorrow's Beach Talk as we look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to get a lot out of it. And again, I hope you have a great day.
you for your time. We would love to partner with you. Uh, water is a global problem. It's going to take as many partners as we can to help solve this problem. We'd love for you to partner with us. If you can go to our website at www.oceanwater.com. That's O-C-N-W-T-R.com. We'd love that. Thanks so much.